Father, we lift up our hearts, we lift up our hands, and we want to acknowledge that you are the one true God. God, you've created us. Um, For some of us in this room, you have redeemed us and brought us new life. And for that, we give you thanks. God, it's easy to look at the brokenness around us and inside of us, to get discouraged, to lose hope, to get bitter. So God, we want to just lift our eyes to you and we want to stop and just give you thanks to bless your name for your goodness. Even when it seems like you're not at work, God, you are. Even when it seems like you're hidden, you are working behind the scenes to orchestrate and to turn the, the tragedy of life into your ultimate triumph. And so God, we, though we cannot see that, want to trust you. And God, I pray right now as we uh, listen to your word and we see how you've acted in history, in real time and space to deliver your people. God, our prayer and our heart cry is that you would do it again. That you would do it again in our hearts, that you would do it again in our families, that you would do it again in our neighborhoods. God, that you would show up and that your presence and power would transform us, transform um, our neighborhood, transform our world. God, we don't ask that in a trite way. We know what that means. We know how gritty and raw that is. But God, we ask you to show up in the midst of the mess and to, uh, to do what only you can do. So God, we ask for your help. We pray for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, have a seat. My name is Brandon. If I, don't, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, uh, I serve as one of the pastors here at SOMA. I'm normally up in Broad Ripple, so uh, ju- judge me as you will. Uh, but glad to be here with you guys. If you're new uh, to SOMA downtown uh, for the last couple weeks, we have been uh, beginning a journey through the book of Exodus, which is just a beautiful narrative of God's grace and the way that he works in all kinds of unexpected and yet powerful ways to bring about his purposes in the world. Uh, so you'll see uh, Jingo De La Rosa, this beautiful uh, artwork here of kind of, a, I don't, it's not a taxi, it's, real, it's kind of a bus in the wilderness working through, uh, and, and in so many ways, this is such a great graphic of kind of the, the grit and yet the beauty of what God's doing in the book of Exodus. And so um, if, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the narrative of Exodus, essentially the arc of the story is you have a psychotic uh, emperor who uh, has this empire, and he has, uh, as God's people have grown, Uh, he essentially enslaved them. And so the story of Exodus is really the story of God liberating his people out of this empire of uh, anxiety and and productivity. It's kind of of two stories in the book of Exodus, the story of what God uh, as as the rightful king wants to do in the world and and the story about what Pharaoh is trying to do to subvert God's good design for humanity. And so uh, it's a story of deliverance. It's a story of liberation. It's a story of freedom. And, um, and so you, you see in chapter 1 and chapter 2 all of this oppression, both on a macro level and a micro level. You see exploitation, you see dominance, you see violence, you see coercion, you see genocide. I mean, this is, these are the harsh realities of life, right? We don't like to talk about these often in the church, right? We want to we be like Dorothy and Wizard of Oz and click our heels and pretend uh, there's, there's some Pollyanna, like there's no place like home, no place like home, no place like home. But we see just violence and despair 
And, and, and we see it multiple, I mean, it's, it, this is multi-generational, right? This is over hundreds of years, God's people are being ground down, uh, dehumanized. Um, they are victims of injustice, right? Like all of this is happening here in Genesis, uh, Exodus chapter one, chapters 1 and 2. And so what we're going to begin to see um, in the shift here in chapters 2 and 3 is th- it's the introduction of kind of the main character uh, from a human standpoint in the book of Exodus is a, a man named Moses. Now, if you grew up in church, you've probably seen Moses on a felt board. If you don't know what that is, good for you. You didn't grow up in church. But uh, Moses is often presented as like this flat, kind of two-dimensional character. He's usually uh, represented as the hero, right? Uh, He has these character traits that should be emulated. Um, Now, that's what we present to children. That's like the sanitized Moses, okay? And I have four kids, so I know like the real Moses, we're not allowed to talk about until our kids reach like 13, okay? So I've uh, a 13-year-old here in just about two months, and so we'll start introducing him to the real Moses. But we're all adults in this room, so we see the real Moses is just this, uh, he, he is just this contrast uh, in, in kind of competing, uh, like there's really great things about Moses, and then there's just tragic flaw. I mean, he is a Shakespearean ca- character, right, to the core. Tragic comic, right, like he's got great things, and then he just does some really stupid things, and that is really the story of Moses. But what we begin to see uh, in the larger trajectory of Exodus with Moses is that um, God's liberation is is holistic. It's comprehensive. And what he came to do is not just to rescue a people from external oppression. And and, And that's definitely a theme. This is not just spiritual. Like a lot of people want to spiritualize Exodus and talk about kind of the liberation of the soul and the liberation of the human heart. No, this is God actually redeeming a real people from a real empire that is unjust on every level and probably more so than what we experience uh, today in our world where we just scratch our heads and say, what the heck's going on? Uh, but, but what we begin to see in the life of Moses is that some of the things that are oppressing uh, the people of God are not just out there in the world, they're actually inside. And Moses is kind of a paradigm or a paragon for the transformation that will have to be comprehensive for the people of God to truly experience whole life, like whole world uh, liberation, right? And so um, here's kind of the big idea for today that I want to begin to unpack. This is kind of part one uh, of a sequel. Uh, So this is like, you know, Empire Strikes Back and we're coming back to Return of the Jedi, uh, you know, next week. And chapter two and chapter three are all about... uh, the life of Moses and his transformation. But here's the big idea with today's story, that God's work of liberation in us is often the catalyst for God's work of liberation through us. In other words, God has to change us and transform us before we can become the kind of people who then move out and pursue transformation in the world, right? Because what the world needs, God help us, is not another church, right? We don't need another religious institution. The Near East Side doesn't need another church building with a bunch of hypocritical jerks, right? Like the church, that, that's not the vision for the people of God. What the world really needs um, is um, us to bring our transformed and transforming presence out into our neighborhoods. And as we are being transformed, and only to the degree that we are being transformed, will we have any kind of sustainable, transforming work in the world? We all want to do good in the world. But what we see is if we are not being transformed, we can actually multiply injustice and pain rather than healing injustice and pain. And that really is the story of the church in the West in so many ways over the past couple hundred years. It's like do-gooders out on sometimes literal crusades making uh, the world worse because they lack the awareness to see their own need for the grace of God. 
their own need for transformation on an ongoing basis. And so this is very much an invitation for us to see God's grace and kind of the messiness of that work of transformation. So uh, let me just read this story, uh, this part of the story, this part of the narrative. Uh, If you have a Bible, turn over to Exodus chapter 2. If you don't have one, there should be a black one around you, or all of us have phones. You can download one in like 30 seconds, okay? So uh, Exodus 2, verse 11. We're going to go through the end of the chapter. One day, when Moses had grown up, and he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and he hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Who do you think you are? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up, and he saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? This is supposed to be comedic, so just kind of get the comedy here. Uh, Why have you left the man? And the implication is don't leave a dude alone, okay, like out in the desert. Why have you left this man alone? And then I love this, just funny. Call him that he may eat bread. Like he knows the way to a man's heart, just bread. Like give the guy some bread, call him in here, right? It's funny. Like if you just read the Bible on Facebook, it's actually kind of funny. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, For he said, I have been a sojourner or an alien or an immigrant, the language says there, in a foreign land. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Yeah, so we have this great story here. And, and it's, it's all about the transfer. It's Moses' kind of leadership journey, right? Being transformed uh, from the prince of Egypt to the liberator of God's people. And what's interesting is like how mundane this story starts. Moses, essentially, you could break up this narrative at the end of two and the beginning of three into two walks that Moses took, right? He leaves the palace at, the, at uh, chapter two, verse 11. He walks out and get this, he doesn't come back for 40 years. So be careful, like a walk has the potential to change your life. Be careful about the kind of walks you go on with God. Um, he leaves the palace, doesn't come back for 40 years. And when he comes back, He's the champion, kind of the, the activist, so to speak, for uh, the people of God, the prophet of the people of God, demanding that Pharaoh let the people go. So this, this narrative, this leadership journey can be broken up into a couple different places. So I've, I've uh, tried to lay this out for you. The first season of Moses' leadership, which all of us kind of experience this to one degree or another, is um, what we'll call privilege and pain. 
privilege and pain. So Moses' life in the early years, he was raised in this family system. I don't know how much you know about his birth narrative, uh, but Moses was raised in this kind of juxtaposition of poverty or, or pain and privilege, right? And I think for all of us in the room, uh, we, we're, we're a mixture, right? None of us are pure privilege. None of us are pure pain. Now, some of us, the dowels cranked up a little bit louder uh, for one rather than the other. Some of us grew up in poverty, and we grew up in pain, and we've been on the dark side of, uh, uh, of kind of the, the winter script uh, in the West, and we have experienced what it's like to, to feel like a failure, to feel the shame of growing up in, in pain and, and a lack of privilege. Uh, others of us, maybe the dominant uh, theme of our lives, just again, uh, no shame here, just kind of like this is, I was born into this, we're born into privilege. And uh, again, privilege is the idea of the things that we don't have to think about, the things we don't have to, decisions we don't have to make because of our skin color, because of our class status, because of our last name, uh, because of our intellectual uh, maybe abilities or whatever. Um, and so Moses' story is a little bit of both, I think, like all of us. And so it's very relatable in that way. And again, the story of Exodus is our story. And so I want you to see in the characters them not, again, as, as felt board, flat, you know. Uh, I want you to see them as kind of like three-dimensional, four-dimensional characters who are a mixture of good and, and bad, right? And so Moses' birth story starts with pain and lots of pain. I mean, a very traumatic. We talk about um, in, in psychology, complex developmental trauma. Okay, like if there was a picture in the dictionary for complex developmental trauma, Moses would be there, right? It's, I mean, he, uh, he's abandoned by his mother. Again, remember the Pharaoh had issued a, a genocidal edict where basically all the firstborn males were to be drowned in the river, right? So all of Moses' peers are being murdered, being literally taking babies and throwing them into the river. That's, that's what's happening here. And so his mom, in his act of courage and compassion, places him in a basket. And, and he's later discovered, as he floats down the river there, by the Pharaoh's daughter, picked up by the Pharaoh's daughter, adopted into the Pharaoh's family. So he becomes the prince of Egypt. Uh, but in kind of a twist, uh, he's reunited with his birth mother. She actually weans him and, and, uh, and raises him for a period of time, only then to be returned back to his adoptive family. Now let's just stop right there. I mean... That's a lot, right? That's a lot to, to experience as a young child. I mean, think of people that are in and out of the foster care system, right? Think of, I mean, my daughter's adopted, right? Like, uh, you, you know what that struggle looks like if you've ever walked with somebody. Deeply, deeply confusing, lots of pain, lots of bitterness, lots of frustration. Kind of feeling like, and, and in Moses' case, um, feeling like he's really in between two worlds. He's got, got two cultures for any of us that have grown up in, in multiple cultures in a home like that, um, you know, like you know what it's like to feel that pull. Um, so my daughter is biracial, and her story is like she's in this home with white people. She goes to a school with a lot of uh, her African-American friends. We have friends of both cultures, and, and there's just this sense of her always trying to figure out where do I fit in. And we're, we're always having those conversations as parents. Where do I fit in, and why is my hair like this, and why, you know, and all those things that you're naturally asking as a part of, uh, this, this kind of a situation. He's raised in a pagan environment uh, by the Pharaoh, prohibited from living and worshiping according to the traditions of his, uh, his heritage. And so Moses has this trauma of feeling like he's between two worlds and yet not fully at home in any particular world. But he's gifted, right? He's very smart. Uh, Acts chapter 7, next slide, tells us that uh, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians 
and he was mighty in his words and his deeds, right? So he's, he's a cultural elite. Like Moses went to an Ivy League school, right? Like he was raised in private schools, prep school kid, you know what I mean? He's got all the best education, all the best uh, access to the right people, what we might call social capital uh, for Moses is pretty strong. And so, uh, but he's also very smart. And so naturally, he's just kind of predisposed in that way. But what we see here, I just want to kind of recap this little season of Moses' life, is that there's a lot of wounds here with Moses in his early days. And what we begin to see in the story of Moses and really repeated throughout the Bible is that um, our deepest wounds don't lock us into uh, despair. God is doing something in his life to where actually in the Bible, oftentimes the deepest wounds of biblical characters become the catalyst for their greatest ministry. The deep wounds that we experience, I mean, I think the reason Moses is bothered when he looks out and he sees this oppression happening is because he's lived this his whole life. He knows something about what it's like to be on the, the dark side. So God is using all of these experiences in his life to weave together the tapestry for which is, this is going to become Moses' great uh, ministry of deliverance. So Moses moves out as an, as an adult now. He sees injustice happening, so he goes for a walk. Really interesting here in the language. Look at verse 11. When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens. That word look there is really interesting. So it's not like, okay, I see you, and this image comes into my eye, and this process by my brain, and then I move on. Like, you, you see things on Instagram, you see things on social media, and you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then you kind of swipe down or swipe left or right or whatever it is. Like, now this, this kind of seeing is seeing with emotion. This is seeing with emotion. It's the same language as in, uh, I don't know if you know the story in Genesis chapter 16 of Sarah and Abraham and Hagar. Hagar is kind of like um, Moses' mistress, and she gets pregnant by Moses. Sarah kind of essentially contracts her to have her baby, and then she gets uh, Sarah and Hagar. Sarah throws Hagar essentially out of Abraham's house, and then she's alone in the desert, and she's uh, literally, her and her son are about to die. This is Ishmael's uh, mother, and God shows up and speaks to her through an angel, and she says, you're the God who sees me. You're the Lord who sees. It's the same word there. It's a word of intense emotion. Moses looks out and sees, literally the word here is being beaten to death. Nakah. Nakah comes up over and over. So if you see the word struggle or beating or fighting, it's not just like, you know, open face, you know, like open hand face slapping. That's not what's happening here. You know, these literally, it is being beaten to death. And he has compassion. Now, what's amazing about the way that he sees is this is not how Egyptians are trained to see slaves. Moses, as a cultural elite, would have grown up in an educational and imperial system that would have taught him that slaves are not human beings. Slaves are commodities. They are not people with rights or dignity. They are not to be treated with respect. They are subhuman commodities they are units of productivity to advance the empire's interests so every i mean even the act of seeing here is an act of justice because he begins to see them in a different kind of way he sees them as his brothers he sees them as human beings right he's subverting the power structures of egypt even with optics 
He's subverting the social structures, the religious structures, the cultural power structures of Egypt by seeing them as people with burdens, by seeing them as people who deserve better, by seeing them as people with rights, beginning to see with God's eyes that they're not commodities to be traded, but rather people to be loved. That's what begins to happen when God gets a hold of your heart. The way you see people begins to change. Moses looks out into Egypt and he sees injustice. And so he intervenes. Moses isn't the kind of guy that just like retweets something and then like, you know, goes and takes a nap, right? Moses is a guy that sees and intervenes. He's a guy that sees and acts. Matter of fact, he can't help himself. You're going to see throughout the book of, uh, of Exodus that Moses is one of those guys who's got some anger issues, right? And so he sees and he steps into injustice and is like, not on my watch. And so he begins to intervene. He's a very courageous man. Right? And I suspect that that's not, just nurture, that's not just nature, that's probably also nurture. He was raised, if you think about it, by two very courageous women. And we often forget that in this story. An adoptive mother and a mother who took care of him and who refused to hand him over to the river. Hebrews chapter 11, next slide, verse 24, we see here his failure and his exile. Next slide. By faith, Moses, when he, has grown, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, refused and renounced essentially his privilege. And he chooses to redirect that power for the good of his brothers and sisters, choosing to be mistreated with the people of God and then to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. There is a deep sense of solidarity here between Moses and his people. And, and that's kind of the beginnings, right, of, of any kind of justice movement, any, any sort of righteousness in the Bible is we move from a, a mentality that is me versus them, me and the other, right? There's those people over there. We live in a world that loves to do this, right, to put people into categories, into groups, right? And then we define ourselves not for something but over and against this group. Well, at least I'm not politically left or I'm not politically right or I'm not pro-gentrification or I'm not, you know, we have every neighborhood has different kind of uh, heroes and, and winners and losers, right? Um, but Moses begins to go, no, they are me and I am them. No longer can I stand by and watch them be mistreated because they are really me. And if they're mistreated, that means I'm being mistreated. And if I'm being mistreated, then that means God himself is being mistreated. That's the shift that's beginning to take place here. But this courage is kind of uh, unrefined, shall we call it, right? It's unrefined, and it leads Moses to this place of failure. And so he intervenes, and he kills this, this uh, Egyptian, essentially would have been a line manager, kind of a blue-collar worker in the larger system of uh, the Egyptian hierarchy. And so he kills this guy. Now, um, he could, as the prince of Egypt, kill anybody that he wanted. He had virtually unlimited power to kill anybody that he wanted. But the reason he gets in trouble here, and the reason he's kind of like a little three-year-old, like stealing cookies here, like looking one way, looking the other, uh, is because this is exposing something deeper about the allegiances and the loyalties of Moses. He's not just killing an Egyptian. He could kill an Egyptian if he wanted to. He was actually killing uh, this Egyptian for the sake of his brothers, protecting and defending his people. And so what was exposed there in this murder is that his allegiances and his loyalties had begun to shift away from the Egyptian power structures and towards his vulnerable brothers and sisters, towards the slaves. And that's why he flees. 
want us to see, um, again, ourselves in this story. And I hope that you can maybe identify, I think these, this, is a, this is a great story. And again, I know I'm characterizing here, stereotyping, not all of us are young. But we kind of lean a little bit younger here at Soma, right? Um, and so as I'm looking around the room, I, I see a lot of Moseses, for lack of a better word, a lot of young, angsty leaders who really care about doing great things in the city. Um, it's why many of you bought houses where you bought houses. It's why you rent where you rent. It's why you got the job that you've got. It's why you've passed up promotions. It's why you got in relational circles. Like, um, it's, it's why you do what you do. Like, you're here. Nobody, very few people live on the Near East side because it's easy, right? Like, there's very few that's, very little that's easy about living uh, in the downtown community, right? It's expensive. There's lots of challenges and obstacles that you face. Just to, like, normal tasks that, like, people in the burbs do every single day are just a lot harder, right, when you live uh, in the downtown community. And so um, maybe we can see some of ourselves in Moses um, in terms of what, what we learn about his story. Um, just again to summarize, um, Moses grew up confused, lots of pain and privilege, but not knowing what to do about that, right? Not knowing how to deal with and how to process th- this, this place that he found himself. And I'm sure over time was just kind of stuffing that stuff down, not dealing with that. And what begins to happen for all of us as leaders is when we stuff things down, when we don't deal with things that are happening inside of us, lots of those things having to do with our past, having to do with the way we were raised, having to do with turning points and and, uh, and different like victories as well as struggles and losses, right? Like the hard stuff, like the, the stuff that makes you angry on a regular basis. The stuff that brings weird sadness, like where you start to cry, it's, you know, some random commercial, and you're like, why am I crying? You know, okay, like that kind of stuff, the hard emotions. Moses is kind of pushing those down, it seems like, for a long period of time. And then all of a sudden, this tends to happen, that you can only push that stuff down for so long. And then he gets into the crucible of leadership, and what begins to happen? All the stuff that he's pushed down beneath the surface begins to get surfaced, as it always does. And it just takes a moment. It just takes a trigger. It just takes a spark for everything that's on the inside to come out for everybody to see. And so Moses, in the midst of this failure, is beginning to see himself in a different light. He's beginning to see things and patterns about the way that he's been operating that are no longer going to serve him uh, in his future role as the liberator of Israel. He's sensing this calling, right? There's even before he meets God, kind of this calling this vocation that's emerging for him to be the liberator but obviously unrefined that begins to create problems and and one of the central struggles i think for moses that we all face is trusting god versus playing god moses here is a guy that um, is used to just getting it done right he gets mad about something he steps towards it and he fixes it right he's a guy that has learned to play god instead of trust God to right the wrongs in his life. And many of us have experienced that, especially those of us who I think deal with trauma at a young age. What we know from psychology uh, is that the more trauma you experience as a young child, the more uncertainty and chaos that you experience as a young child, the more you tend to gravitate towards uh, uh, control, right? You create kind of inside and maybe outside of your world, you shrink your world down and, and, and it's kind of about creating a box, And you have these really high expectations for yourself because that's the way you manage the chaos as a child is that you just create a really small world. And if I can control at least what's going on inside of me, I can't control what's happening around me, but if I can control what's happening inside of me, then life's going to be okay. It's a survival mechanism, right? It's a coping strategy for dealing with lots of pain. 
So I don't know all that's going on inside of Moses, but we do get some insights into this inner world and we begin to see this. And what the crucible of leadership does, I mean, people who are high control people, and and that's a lot of us, right? There are different manifestations of control. So you can be controlling with a smile on your face. Like, I'm not talking about like a type A person who walks around barking orders at people, okay? That's usually insecurity and fear. I'm talking about people who deal with shame, people who, who have these high expectations. What often happens for people like that is they'll get paralyzed with anxiety on the one hand, makes you really anxious because keeping yourself in that box is really challenging. Really paralyzed with anxiety. Or others of us go the other way. We just get flooded with anger. When the world doesn't go the way that we want, I mean, the way that you can kind of tra- trace this out as in, in your own life maybe is look for those trailheads of anxiety and anger. Where do you experience, and I'm not talking about the kind that you can manage, like everybody's like, yeah, I'm kind of angry sometimes. I'm talking about the primal anger where you just explode on somebody. Like unfiltered, raw, and then afterwards you're like trying to explain to everybody, oh, that wasn't the real me. No, that's the real you. It's in there. It's just been locked up with a padlock in the basement for a long time. Marriage begins to bring it out. Young kids begin to bring it out. Your work, your coworkers begin to bring that out. Uh, Living uh, in an unjust world begins to bring that out. And here's the here's the reality that we see in the life of Moses. When we don't deal with our pain, other people have to deal with our pain. When our pain is not surrendered to God and transformed, it gets transferred. It gets transferred to people around us. It gets transferred into our leadership. It gets transferred into our relationships. It gets transferred into our children. It gets transferred into our workplace. When privilege and pain aren't surrendered to God, they ultimately lead us to failure. And so in this crucible of leadership, God is exposing these things for Moses and saying, hey, pay attention. Because if you think this is hard now, you saw one beating, I'm about to bring a kind of deliverance. And, and, and by the way, Moses, you're going to be surrounded with, by hundreds of thousands of grumbling, complaining church folk over 40 years in the wilderness. Like if you want to kill some people now, you're really going to want to kill some people then. Anybody who doesn't believe that has never been in ministry, right? The only people who laugh are people who've like led a missional community, okay? So... But he's exposing these things, these unredeemed parts of Moses, and he's inviting him to grow as a leader. And this is the same invitation for us, right? Will we trust God or will we try to play God? Will we trust God? And I know that you guys probably don't. We have this problem at Midtown. I'm sure downtown you don't have this problem of trusting God. You guys wake up in the morning. God, thank you. You're amazing. I just want to serve you today. I trust you with my heart. I trust you with my marriage. I trust you with my singleness. I trust you with my wounds. I'm trusting you, God, to just do great things in this neighborhood. And you're walking around chipper. And you're, you know, you're just like so, so trusting God and dependent on him for every single breath. Right? Like that's downtown, right? No, doesn't feel that way, right? You walk in the neighborhood, there's, everybody's freaking out. Everybody's anxious. Everybody's angry. There's all this rage without any possibility of redemption going on. Like, not just on the Near East side. It's like our whole world seems to have lost its mind. Everybody's freaking out. And nobody's freaking out worse than Christians. Will we try to play God or will we trust God? And again, what we see happening is when we try to play God, we always multiply injustice. We do not heal it. 
when we don't allow ourselves to be transformed, we end up carrying those very things that we want to fix. We actually make them worse. Because injustice is not just something out there in the world. It's not just something that we can attribute to some kind of man behind a curtain somewhere. Injustice lives in us. It is inside of us. And given enough opportunity, it will spring upon us and those around us and will have a negative impact if we're not aware. Now, this isn't just a Christian observation. Albert Camus was a philosopher in Algerian who lived uh, about, uh, you know, less than a century ago. And he wrote a series of essays, not a follower of Jesus that I know of. He wrote a series of essays reflecting on uh, basically like this kind of nihilistic, like world gone mad. He's reflecting at the beginning of the 20th century. He wrote a series of essays called Neither Victims Nor Executioners. And as he was reflecting on Algeria and kind of the violence there and Russia and some of the Soviet Union, some of the violence there, um, he basically says there seems to be this pattern in human history where a group of people are oppressed. And then what happens? Those people rise up and they, they cast off their oppressors. But then what, what's the next step after they cast off their oppressors? They become executioners, he says. They become the oppressors. And oftentimes the backlash of the response to the initial oppression is much worse than the original oppression. Which is why the civil rights movement and the nonviolent response by Dr. King and uh, the different societies was truly revolutionary because it did not perpetuate that cycle. It was an attempt learning, and a lot of those guys read Camus, right? If you read King and you read some of the civil rights leaders, they read Camus, they knew about that cycle, and they said the way to disrupt that is through nonviolent protest and faith in God. And so what God is doing is inviting us to see that we have a choice to make as leaders, trust God or play God. God uses this failure to open up Moses' eyes to his blind spot, to bring him to the end of his own strength and him trying to do things uh, just out of the gut, right? And to reveal his need for deep, deep, deep transformation. I mean, by the end of the story in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, Moses is going to be called the humblest and meekest man on the planet. Which is, again, if you know early Moses, that is miraculous. So let me just ask you this question. We'll begin to wrap up here in a few minutes. How do you see failure? I mean, this is a story about Moses' failure, right? Moses, from a human standpoint, sidetracks the rescue mission. Do you see failure as a time for freaking out? Like some of you are going through failure right now. You're failing in business. You're failing in some of your relationships. You, nobody wants to admit it. We're all, we all have smiles on our faces at church, right? Everything's good. My marriage is awesome. My kids are amazing. They're all prodigies. You know, they're doing great. I love being single. It's just this calling from God, a time for me to be intentional about my singleness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get that. Like you, t- you say that. But for real, for real. Like when we're in the midst of experiencing failure or struggle or challenges that just we just can't see a way out and we're wondering where is God in this do we see those as times to freak out because that's what most everybody does they freak out there's a trap door you know for some of us we freak out and then we just bail or can we see God at work in the midst of our failure God inviting us to 
change some things about ourselves, to experience deep and comprehensive spiritual and psychological and intellectual, like a conversion. That's what's, that's what's beginning to happen in the life of Moses. It's a, it's a rebirth. It's a renewal that's, that's being brought to Moses here. Do we see failure as a time for freaking out or as a divine opportunity? That in the midst of my failure, we're going to go on to see next chapter, next slide, grace in the wilderness. God continues to pursue Moses, and there's something in the heart of God that's attracted to failure. (laughs) There's something in the heart of God that's attracted to weakness. There's something in the heart of God that's attracted to dependence. When we reach the end of ourselves, that's when God begins to show up. The first time God speaks in the story is 40 years into Moses in the wilderness. That's how God works. So Moses flees to the desert, to what we might call a place of solitude, right? To a place of obscurity. There's no applause. There's no TV cameras. It's just Moses face-to-face with himself and God. And this is exactly where God wants him. The desert, again, throughout the Bible, is a place of encounter. Jesus goes to the wilderness. John the Baptist goes to the wilderness. Elijah goes to the wilderness. Like all, Jacob goes to the wilderness in the book. Like all, like all these people go to the wilderness. They go to the desert, afraid, full of shame, wondering, is it the end? And that's where God shows up. Ruth Haley Barton, in her great book on the life of Moses, says this about this season of Moses' life. The first leg of Moses' journey as a leader then was not to lead anyone else anywhere. It was to allow himself to be led into freedom from his own bondage. He had bondage that he needed to be delivered from. Before he could lead others into freedom, he needed to experience freedom himself. We can't offer people something we've not experienced. It's inauthentic. It's not real. You'll burn out. In solitude, he was able to let go of these coping mechanisms, these patterns that had guided his life up to this point, that had served him well in the palace, but were not going to serve him well in the desert. They were completely inappropriate for the leader he was becoming. And man, the grace of God is spectacular in the wilderness, right? I mean, this is a crazy story about how he beats up these union worker, like shepherds. We tend to think of shepherds as like soft, you know, carrying lambs, like these, again, these pictures. Shepherds were like bosses, man. Like they killed bears with sticks, right? I mean, shepherds were tough dudes and he beats down a group of shepherds to protect these seven sisters he, he eventually marries one of these seven women and spends 40 years in the wilderness like God is providing for him. He gives him safety. He gives him security. He gives him a family, like all of these things that I'm sure Moses never thought. I mean, he goes to the well. And like the well is like the bar in the, in, the, in the Torah, right? It's like where you meet women, right? It's like the place where all of his forefathers, Jacob, and all these people met their wives, and so what we see is God is beginning to weave Moses' life. Not just, not, he's not just healing him psychologically here. He is weaving him into his covenant promises. He's doing something in Moses' life that ties him into the story of God. And you see all of these parallels with the, the life of Moses and the life of Abraham, the life of Isaac, the life of Jacob, and the life of Joseph. God is doing, I mean, very similar parallels. God is weaving him into 
his redemptive promises. He's giving him a new identity. He's giving him a new story. And he's saying, you will not be defined by your failures. Your failures are not the end. Matter of fact, your failure is the beginning. Your greatest failure is the beginning of your transformational journey as a leader. And that's amazing. It's truly amazing to see this kind of grace in the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus. So God shows up at the end of this chapter for the first time, really, in the book of Exodus. And as the people are crying out, and as, as Moses is in the wilderness, God hears. God sees. And God comes down. That's the, story of Mo- that's the story of Exodus. The story of Exodus is not about Moses. The, the story of Exodus is about God. It's about Yahweh, the one who saves, the one who liberates, the true liberator. And this is who Moses is about to meet next week face-to-face at the burning bush out at Mount Horeb. He is going to meet the one who created him, the one who is redeeming him, and the one who is going to ultimately save his people. I mean, this is spectacular. Notice again the parallels between Moses and God. God hears these cries for help. These are prayers that are essentially going up to God. They come up to God's ears. So we know that God hears our cries for help. They're, they're, they're in slavery, and they cry out to God, right? That that's tends to be when we cry out to God is when we have no other options. Like, I love Peter in the New Testament, John chapter 8. Jesus is like, are you guys going to leave too? Like, everybody leaves him. And Peter's like, well, where else are we going to go? I mean, that, like, I love that. Because if we're honest, that's, that's like how we come to God. It's like, well, there's no better options, right? So you're a good fallback plan, right? Like, that's kind of essentially what Peter's saying. And that's when God works, when we are at our worst. He shows up. He hears. He responds. He's never distracted from his purposes. It says he, he hears. He remembers. And the idea here is not that God's forgotten. Remembering in the Old Testament just means he chooses now to bring about the fullness of his promises. Right? His love has been activated, and he's going to do something about it. And then God knew. That word know there is a beautiful Hebrew word for intimacy. Intimacy. God moves towards a relationship with his people, and he renews his promises again. Now, all of this, if that weren't amazing enough, is all pointing us forward as a signpost to pointing us forward to communion. We take communion every week as a church. What are we celebrating? The fact that Jesus is our liberator. And you think about the story of Jesus when you begin to put these things together. Some things should be going off in your head if you know about the story of Jesus. Jesus born in the line of Abraham. Born into an empire, the Roman Empire where an edict, a genocidal edict had been passed down from a psychotic emperor. Kill all the firstborn children. So what happens? Jesus' family become refugees. They become fugitives. They run to Egypt, to the wilderness for a couple years. And Jesus comes back. And the first thing that he does is he spends 40 days in the wilderness fighting Satan, sin, death, and hell. And he emerges from the wilderness as the champion for God's people. And he lays down his life, right? He dies. He submits himself to the ruling powers. And three days later, he rises again 
and he brings about the kingdom of God. That's the bigger story that Exodus is telling. It's really cool if you read in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, one of the last uh, little uh, snapshots we have of the story of Jesus in the Gospels. He goes up on the mountain. Remember the transfiguration? And he's up on the mountain with who? Elijah and Moses. And it says they're not talking about sports, not talking about the weather patterns, you know, not talking about... It says he's discussing with those men his coming exodus. Same one. Jesus has come to bring a new exodus. We are slaves to the satanic powers in the world. And the brokenness that we experience is not just because of a particular political ideology. It's not just because we we live in a Western capitalist society. It's not the narratives and tropes that are kind of recycled out there. And if we just get more educated, if we just do this, this, and this, then it's going to, I mean, every generation since the beginning of time has been saying, if we just do this, then we can fix the world. And it never works because there's a deeper magic, as C.S. Lewis says, at work in the world, a deeper, darker magic that has us enslaved, that only God, the liberator, can deal with. And that's what we celebrate every single week in communion, that God has come to rescue us. If we will cry out, Lord, have mercy, God, help. He is faithful to save. He's come for broken people. He's come for failures like us. And he invites us to come and receive his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. That is the only hope we have in a broken, unjust world. And as God begins to do that work of transformation in us, moving us from a selfish, kind of uh, self-absorbed people full of injustice who are learning what it means, imperfect people looking to a perfect Savior to rescue them and redeem them, as we begin to have those wounds and injustices and slaveries inside of us healed, then we're set free to move out into the world and be agents of transformation. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's what we celebrate every single week in communion. So I want you to put down your stuff, and I just want you to think as we come to communion, we're going to sing a few more songs, and we're going to send you back out here. But I want you to make this story your story. Don't just hear this and go, oh, that's interesting history. Oh, there's some interesting little footnotes there about Camus. Oh, we talked about some philosophers. Okay, no. I want you to think about yourself. And I want you to see yourself in the story of Israel. We are Israel in this story. We are a people in slavery who need to just cry out for God, who need to groan desperately for God's presence and his power, and, and who say with uh, Moses is going to go on to say, I think it's Exodus 33, God, if your presence and your power does not go with us, we don't want to go because we are doomed to failure. And so I want us just to bring our hearts before him. God hears our groaning. God hears our shrieking. God hears our broken, desperate prayers. And he promises to come near and to heal. And so let's just take a moment right where you're at. You can kneel, you can stand, you can close your eyes, you can keep your eyes up. I don't care. But just talk to God. Maybe it's been a while since you've talked to God. Maybe you've got some hurts around church, around religion. Maybe you've got some pain with some family members or some relationships. I just want you to bring it before God and say, God, here I am. God, this is what I need. God, will you heal me? God, will you show up? Will you, will you begin the process of doing a good work in my life?
God, you have designed me to flourish as a human being in relationship with you and with my brothers and sisters. That's what communion is about. And so let's take a moment to cry out to God. We have stations here at the front, both sides. I think our um, gluten-free stations over here if you need that. But let's just take a moment. Let's cry out to God. I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll come, and if you're a follower of Jesus, if that's the cry of your heart this morning, I want to cry out to God, God, have mercy on me. I need Jesus, right? Like, I can't do it. I can't save myself. I want to invite you to come and receive communion. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're here. But please stay in your seat as others come and receive communion. And maybe think about, what would it look like for me to really encounter that kind of a God? And that that kind of a God to come in and begin to transform my life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of Exodus that you've come to liberate and to save your people, both from the oppression inside of us as well as the oppression outside of us. The kingdom of God, one day, you will come as the king. You will deal with all injustice in the world, and you will bring your shalom. You will bring your peace. You will bring wholeness. You will bring righteousness on a personal level, on a social level, on a cultural level, and on a global level, God. One day, every tribe and tongue and nation will be gathered before you in your kingdom of justice. And God, we long for that day. But as we live in this day with pains and hurts and wounds, God, would you just speak to us? God, would you allow us to be honest before you with those things, to bring them to you, to surrender them to you so that you might begin and continue the work of transformation that we so desperately need in this room first before we demand it outside of this room. We pray in Jesus' name.